In a 10 minute conversation, you are likely to be lied to two to three times and 91% of people lie regularly at home and at work. Now, why do we do that? What drives people's behavior? And more importantly, can you predict and change that behavior? Well, these are the questions today's woman of impact began to ask herself when she found herself unable to even carry out a conversation in public. A self-proclaimed boring person, she didn't think she had anything to offer, so why would anyone else be interested? And so began her fascination into all aspects of human behavior, from relationships to communication to body language, believing you can't succeed in love, life or business without first, first and foremost, mastering people skills. This then gave birth to the Science of People, a human behavior research lab whose mission it is to crack the code of human behavior and teach others how to do the same. With over 300,000 students in over 40 countries and 189 cities around the world, her studies and teachings are simply earth-shaking. Like a 7.9 on the Richter scale earth-shaking. Fortune 500 companies such as Google, Dove, Facebook and American Express all seek consultation with her and CNN, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, The Today Show and Forbes magazine can't get enough of her. So please, join me in welcoming the author of the national best-selling book, Captivate, a book that has been translated into over 16 languages, a book that was chosen by Apple as one of the most anticipated books of the year, and a book that has had profound impact on my own marriage and in building our company, Impact Theory. The professional people watcher herself, Vanessa Van Edwards. Yay! Oh my goodness, that, that intro was like the nicest thing ever. Gotta remind me that's my mom too. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. When I me. first started this show, I had a wish list and you were like right at the top, girl. I had an experience recently that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. I was going to this event. I was had to fly all the way to Vegas. I was only there for three hours. Oh. I literally went for the event only. Yeah. And so on the way there, I'm like... I don't normally go up to people and just chit chat with them. That's right. not my personality. I'm the awkward person standing in the corner Been waiting there. for someone to talk <laughs> Been to there. me. Yeah. <laughs> but going now is like I've taken a whole day off work. I've traveled all the way there. I'm paying my expenses. Mm-hmm. I better make it worth it. Yeah. So I walk in and I'm just awkward. And so I just walk up to people and I'm just like, hi. And I'm just smiling. Yes. And, yes. and I, I figured it out. But you have such great tips on how to deal with awkwardness because I'm sure everyone at home listening right now has been in those situations. It doesn't have to be business. It could be a family, meeting the in-laws for the first time. Anything, yes. So I think that the biggest thing, at least for me with awkwardness, and by the way, I have so been in that room, in that situation, I, when you break down awkwardness, I think a lot of it comes from not having a goal in place. What I mean by that is if you're walking to an event and you're thinking, I've got to make it worth it, and that's actually most events, right? If you're going to a networking event or a barbecue or a party or a meeting, you're like, I'm not at home watching Netflix. I better make this worth right. my while, right? I've got to make it worth putting on the makeup yeah. or like strapping myself into these banks. I've got to make this worth it. That's one goal, but the other goal is, what is my purpose? So the biggest mistake is when you walk into a room and you're kind of like that wide-eyed effect of where do I stand, who do I talk to, what do I do? Adding purpose to your movement is actually one of the easiest ways you can get rid of that first initial awkwardness. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing that you wanna do um, when you get into an event is you want to go to where I call uh, a treasure line or a, a gold spot. And this is where all that treasure is waiting for you. The rookie mistake is when you walk into a room and you stand right when people enter the room. Mm -hmm. So this is the rookie mistake. People get into the room, right, and they're like, 
hmm, get my name tag, put away my coat, and stand right at the front trying to get someone else who's new. The problem is when you walk into an event, your emotions are at their highest, your adrenaline's at their highest, Mm. and typically when people walk in, they have to go to the bathroom, they wanna get something to drink, they wanna get something to eat. So whatever you do, do not stand in that start zone. So as soon as you go in, your number one goal is to get past the start zone, right? get into the event. The very best place to stand when you're at an event is right as people exit the drink line. Okay. And that could be even at a party wherever someone leaves the bar. And that's because, think about it psychologically. When you're getting your drink, that's like, mm. you, it's kind of like a security mm-hmm. thing, right? Whether it's coffee, tea, wine, whatever it is. Once you turn to face the room and you have your drink in hand, that's when you're like, oh my goodness, I better have someone to talk to. If you're standing right when people turn to face the room, you're actually providing them with social relief. Mm. Because what happens is you're solving the problem of who do I talk to? Because the moment they face the room, your opening line is, hey, how's the wine? How's that cocktail? How's that tea? Hey, what brings you here? Hey, nice to meet you. So it's actually not just how you approach, it's putting yourself in a position where you become a social savior. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the best places to stand. So that would be the very first thing I would say. Okay. And the second one, if you can do it, is something that I call the offer mentality. The offer? The offer mentality. So back in the day when I was first building my business, I went to all these conferences, right? And there was one conference that I had to go to that wasn't in my industry. It wasn't in my niche. So I wasn't going to build business. I wasn't going to pass out business cards. I was just going to help a friend. And so I went thinking to myself, how can I make it so that other people are having a really good time to help my friend out? Mm. I ended up having the best time I had ever had at a conference. And I realized it was because I had a subtle shift. In previous networking events or conferences, I would go in asking. I needed things, right? I wanted business, I wanted to connect on LinkedIn, I wanted a business card. I was going with an ask mentality. Whereas this conference, I wasn't looking for anything. I was literally going thinking to myself, how can I make sure this person has a nice time, a nice conversation? Can I connect them with someone I know? That offer mentality in a weird way actually got me more business. Even though they weren't in my business, people were so happy to talk Mm. to me, happy to chat. So that's sort of the second thing is what makes us awkward is when we feel like we're begging. You know, we're we're in this scarcity mindset of there's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, do I have enough time? Do I have enough? Do I look cool enough? Do I fit in here? Do I belong here? That's all scarcity mindset. If you go in with more of an offer mentality of, I have enough. I have enough to give. I have enough conversation to give. I have enough interest to give. Mm-hmm. How can I just give? I think that fundamentally changes it so that it's not about you anymore. And so the awkwardness kind of goes away. Mm. What if you don't feel like you have enough to give? Mm. Do you fake it? So I fundamentally, <laughs> I do not believe in faking it till you make it. Which by the way, my entire career, I tell myself, Lisa, you need to fake it till you make it. And then when I heard you say it, I'm like, please tell me more. Yeah. Like, I'd love to know something that I've been doing wrong <sighs> this whole time. I know. And so fake it till you make it kind of entered like the cultural zeitgeist yeah. at one point. And then everyone was saying it, right? Yeah. Like everyone was saying it. And yeah. women would be like, fake it till you make it. And I'm like, why are you telling yourself to be fake? Ah. Right? So wh- huh. the words we use are very powerful. And I can I give you a scientific study that I love? A hundred percent. I love your scientific studies. Okay, so studies. this study is like... Uh, they had participants enter a dark room. And imagine this, you enter a dark room, you're blindfolded. Okay. And the researcher gives you a bowl of yogurt. Okay. And he says, here's a bowl of strawberry yogurt. 
I'd like you to eat this yogurt, and then I'm going to ask you about its strawberry flavor. Okay. <clears throat> I've so been primed now. Okay, yep. So you're eating your yogurt, right? And you're eating it, and I, most of the participants rated this yogurt as having a nice strawberry flavor. Of course, there was a catch. I'm sure you could guess. <laughs> yeah. The yogurt was actually chocolate. <gasps> That's amazing. Okay. okay. And what happened was, is they told the brain, you're about to have... Yeah strawberry yogurt. So the brain actually tasted strawberry yogurt. The words that we use are incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to psych yourself up for an event by saying, fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it, you're telling yourself to be fake. And you and I both know that when you come across someone who's like, hi, it's so good to meet you. Oh my God, I love your earrings. You can just smell it, sense it, taste it. And you don't want to be around that person. Mm -hmm. So if you're setting yourself up to be fake, it actually it's almost impossible for you to get into authentic, real, deep, connecting discussions and relationships because you've primed yourself for it. And priming is incredibly important because I think that most of us throw away our words. For example, I used to write emails to people and invite them to a meeting next week or a call next week. That's actually a missed priming opportunity because every time I open my calendar and I see meeting with Lisa, I'm like, a oh, a meeting. What if you changed your calendar invites to say creative goal session with mm. Lisa? That means that every time I open my calendar up to see that, I am primed to think, oh, I have a creative goal session with Lisa. One, that makes me much more excited to meet with you. Two, it actually changes the way, the perspective that I'm bringing to this meeting. And lastly, you're actually setting yourself up for more success mm -hmm. because you've asked for what you want. So I would say before you walk into an event, if you're not feeling it, right? Well, number one, can you say no? Saying no is always an option. Okay. It is not worth going to a networking event or a party if you are having a bad day. I don't believe in faking okay. it until you make it, right? So that's number one is can you say no? Yeah. Number two, what is your priming recharge? What is your pre-performance ritual? Athletes have pre-performance rituals. Mm -hmm. Musicians have pre-performance rituals. Why don't we? Hmm. Right, and this could be anything from watching inspiring YouTube videos on YouTube. This could be calling a really funny or inspiring friend. This could be doing a meditation. This could be doing a social meditation. So you have to have those things that you prime yourself just like an athlete. Because every time you interact with someone, that could be an opportunity. Could be an opportunity to meet the love of your life could be an opportunity to make an incredible business Christmas opportunity. It could be a chance to meet a new best friend. And if you go into that thinking that you're going to fake it, you're not only wasting the opportunity, but you're lying to yourself about the realness that you could bring to that situation. So I totally hear the word fake and how that can set you up for failure. Yeah. So what do you do in a situation? Because when I use the word, it's basically, mm. there are many times I feel vulnerable mm. or many, many times I actually feel insecure. Yeah. And I tell myself, it's okay, so I don't judge myself for it. Yeah. It's okay, I like that. but you need to lead with confidence because no one is going to gravitate to someone yep. that isn't confident, especially in a business environment or even if you're dating. For sure. So I would say fake the confidence, mm. but I understand the word. So what would you suggest someone oh, does I like in that it. situation? Okay. So here's what I would say. So another study, um, uh, what they did was they wanted to look at anxiety. And when we're talking about awkwardness, I think that some very similar kind of feelings mm -hmm. in there, anxious, mm -hmm. awkward, um, shy. 
What this study did is they wanted to know that exact question is what do you do if you are anxious, but you got to fake it, right? You got, you got to find confidence. They didn't use the word fake it. So what they realized was that anxiety and anxiousness is a sister emotion to excitement. Mm. Okay. So when you think about when you're anxious, what happens in your body? You get little butterflies in your stomach. You start to kind of sweat. You get a little bit of dry mouth. You feel a little bit hot and sweaty. That's anxious. Your heart's like your heart's palpitations. Going. Now explain excitement to me. Yeah. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. In your body, yeah. anxiety and excitement feel very similar. The cousin or sister emotion, is there a way to reframe how you're viewing your own anxiety as potential excitement? And here's what they did. They took people and they had them uh, come into the lab and they gave them a task. And the task was cruel in my opinion. What was it? They had them sing, don't stop believing into a karaoke machine. So they were rated for their accuracy of words, accuracy of notes, accuracy of lyrics, like oh high pressure. I yeah. know. Okay. So see, I think about, I forget the numbers, right? So they had them sing this karaoke song, but they had three different groups. Okay. The first group walked in, sung the song, done control group. Second group walked in and they had to say, I'm anxious out loud and then sing. And the last group had to say, I'm excited, and then sing the song. That's it. No, no prep, no mental nothing, just saying those words. Of course, the I'm excited group outperformed, outsung, and actually enjoyed the experience more mm. than the group that just said, I'm anxious. This is, I think, such good news. It means that we are in control mm. of how we view our own anxiety, mm. our own awkwardness. The opening line of this book, which by the way, when I first submitted this book to my publisher, my whole introduction was about, you know, science and data and, you know, all these impressive things. And she's like, Vanessa, this isn't you. That's amazing. She's like, can you start with something more vulnerable? She's like, what's the thing that you're most afraid of that readers are going to see about this book? And I'm like, I'm afraid that they're going to read this book and think, why would I learn about charisma from an awkward person? She's like, that's exactly why they want to learn from you. So the opening line of the book is, my name is Vanessa and I'm a recovering awkward person. It's the most vulnerable thing I could think of. And instead of for years in my business, I hit it. Mm. I hit it mm. under the guise of being an expert, a scientist, a journalist. And the moment that I began to put my awkwardness forward as a flip side where I view my awkwardness as a very powerful vulnerability. I do not view my awkwardness as a liability anymore. Mm. And I would say the same thing. If you're anxious or you're nervous or you're lacking confidence, what is the flip side to that? Is it that your anxiousness could be excitement? Use that adrenaline. Is it that your awkwardness could be a real vulnerability to find other fellow recovering awkward people? Right. That was why this book did well. I think it was that opening line. That was why in my videos, I decided to put my awkwardness forward. It's the same thing. I don't want you to fake it till you make it. I want you to show up anxious and awkward and learn how to use it. And that is what gravitated me towards you in the book yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Because you almost don't, you don't want to look up to someone saying they've got it all, they're perfect. Right. I want to look at the awkward person and say, how did she get out of it? Yeah. Because clearly she's, it's worked once. Right, right. And every time I do it, it works again and again. Right. So the funny thing is, for a long time I was trying to grow my business, trying to grow my brand, and trying to be the expert, the expert, mm -hmm. have it all together, be perfect, be Wonder Woman. 
And it wasn't until I started to learn that actually it was the opposite of that. And I learned it really silly. I was posting on Instagram and I posted a picture of me surfing, not well, but me surfing, me up, standing up. Okay. And the funny thing is the photographer for the little surf school had two pictures, one of me surfing and the very next one was of me face planting into the water, okay? <laughs> so I was like, this isn't real. I'm gonna post the face plant. So five minutes later, I posted the face plant. The face plant, of course, got so many more likes, so many more reach outs. And I realized then and there, actually, mm -hmm. that photo, I was like, what am I doing on Instagram? Like, what am I doing with my brand? Like, why am I trying to hide the falls? And I think of it, have you heard of like the swan theory? Have you ever heard this idea? No. So I heard this idea so resonated with me, which when you look at a swan on a lake, it looks so peaceful, right? The swan oh. is beautiful and elegant and gliding and everything's great and perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. But underneath the water, the swan is like, <laughs> you know, like paddling furiously. Yeah. It's murky under there. The water is kind of dirty. They're paddling for their life. Mm. And I was like, that at least feels like me or I don't know other, most other female business owners I know where we're, we're trying to be this perfect swan, right? Mm. But underneath it all, we're wearing Spanx. We're trying to hold it in. We're paddling for our lives. Mm. And I was like, why aren't we talking about the murk? Why aren't we talking about the chaos? Why aren't we talking about the paddling for our lives? So when I go to a networking event, there, no, I walk in and I feel a little awkward. Yeah. You know, I walk in and I'm like, Ooh, there's the cool kids and I'm going the other way. Yeah. Right? Like, do you still do that now? Yes. Interesting. And I think that it's so unfair to say to people, oh no, I never feel awkward. Mm. I'm done feeling awkward. And that's unfortunately what we do, I think, a lot of the times as women is we set ourselves up to think, oh, yeah, you know, I have it all figured out. I never feel nervous. I never feel anxious. I'm confident all the time. So the flip side of trying to show up confident is also how do we say, yeah, I can be confident, but I also had to really work to get it. Mm. Right? Like I, before I walk into an event, I had to think of conversation starters before I walked right. in. When I walked in that event, I kind of scanned the room of like, don't belong there, don't belong there, maybe I could belong there. Interesting, okay, so why do we do that? Like trying to find where we belong and slip in unnoticed. I think it's because part of our personalities as humans is notice me, notice me, notice me. And part of our personality is I just want to feel like I belong. And what's interesting is um, there was a research study done by Van Sloan, and he looked at the question of what makes popular kids popular. Mm. Now, as a not popular kid, I'm very fascinated by popular yeah, kids. Yeah, we do. Okay? So can you guess? He studied thousands of popular kids across a number of different high schools. Okay. And uh, popular kids and unpopular kids, looking for the differences. Mm. What do you think was the biggest difference between unpopular and popular kids? Size and age. Good guess. Actually, it was similar to my guess. My yeah. guess was attractiveness. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, I, which I, actually should have been my first uh, guess. But size is similar, right? Like, I thought it was something physical. Right. I thought, you know, the, the yeah. more attractive the guy was, the more yeah. attractive the girl was, right. the more popular she was. No, it wasn't that. The kids were the most liked if they liked the most other people. Meaning, huh. you are in control of how many people like you because you like the most other people. Wow. So hmm. why, and this resonated with me, I had to really think about it because if you think about a popular kid, they are actually initiating the likability. Yeah. 
Yeah. They smiled the most at other kids in hallways. Hmm. Not the other way around. Not that people smiled at them the most. Right. They smiled the most at other people huh. because they liked more other people. They counted more people amongst their friends and they liked those people. And what this shows is if you're walking into a party and your entire goal in that offer mentality is how can I like more people at this event? That's a very unique goal because it's different than the goal that most people have, which is how can I be the most impressive? How can I get people to like me? Right. The flip yeah. side of that is I want to like everyone here. How can I find a reason to like you? That's Love a that. very different way to approach it. And so I think that what happens is in, in parties, if we go in thinking, are people going to like me? Mm. Are they going to like me? It actually sets you up to be less likable. That's interesting. As the opposite, whereas the cool kid, the most confident person in the room is going, I like you, 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 I like you. Right? That's a very different mentality shift and that's why that happens. You should stop focusing on being more impressive. You should stop thinking about how to tell the funniest story or being more likable. And you should focus on how can you get other people to impress you. Huh. How do you do that? So I was um, asked to do a panel at a conference. Okay. And um, I didn't have much time to prepare for the panel. And I went into the green room and I had to basically very quickly figure out enough about each person in the room to introduce them. Because if you're doing a panel, oh you're in charge of introducing each person. Yeah. So I, I go into the green room and my entire goal is just impress me. Mm. Whereas if I had gone into that green room and they were all big VIPs, right? If I got into that green room thinking, I better be impressive. Mm. I better tell a funny story. I better really give good answers. The conversation would have been awful. Don't think about the impressive story you can tell. Mm. It's more, what questions could you ask if you had to introduce this person to another VIP in 10 minutes? Mm. What questions would you ask to get them to impress you? Yeah. It's a really simple kind of mentality switch, but I also think it gets you out of your own head. And if that's a problem, it's a problem for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It kind of gets you out of your head because you're it's like, impress me. Yeah. Tell me everything amazing about you. Also, people, I think, love to be heard. Yeah. And so when someone's listening yeah. and someone's telling you the story, you're like, wow, they're really interested in my story. And it, so it makes yeah. you warm towards them more. For sure. And if you're listening with such intensity that you want to go introduce them later, like that mental hack uh -huh. is important. It wasn't just get them to tell you an impressive story. It was pretend that you're going to introduce them to someone important. Mm -hmm. So the only caveat here would be is if you're meeting with a VIP, don't ask them the questions that they get asked on panels. Yeah. Don't ask them the questions that they've been asked in interviews because then you're going to immediately flip them into autopilot, right? They're going to immediately go into their podcast mode, their autopilot mode. Yeah, that's so interesting because you want to connect with them. Mm -hmm. And so you think that by asking them the questions that you're connecting. Um, so I actually bumped at one of my mm. biggest people that I've always wanted to interview me in my life, Jodie Foster. Oh, so yes. I went to film school, I studied her, my dissertation was on her. Um, what she's done in film is incredible and so I admire her so much and I bumped into her once. What? In, in like Starbucks and there was no one around and so I was like, this is my chance. Yeah. My instinct was to just like, oh my God, oh my God. Gosh. Oh my God. Yeah, gosh. And then I, I like took a deep breath and I was like, okay, what do I really feel? Like, instead yeah. of trying to just, like, impress her, yeah. what do I actually feel about mm. her? And yeah. just say that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I just had to tell you. I wrote a dissertation on you, and what you've done in film was incredible. And her first um, movie that she directed, Little Man Tay, I was like, was incredible. Yeah. And when I say she flipped on a dime, mm. as soon as I was like, what you've done in film and for females and, and Little Man first, Tay, which, yeah. which was her passion project. Right. So immediately right. I saw a total shift in her. Yeah. And I got like, she was like really sweet and warming and just that one little way of approaching it made all the difference. It flipped her. So what you're talking about, I always, I like nicknames for things, you know, I love naming yeah, things. Yeah. So anything like that, I call like a hot button. So a passion project, a hot button is something that you can hopefully um, tap into or push on. Mm -hmm. I literally think of it's like an on or off mm -hmm. switch when you're with an influencer or a VIP or anyone is is there a topic, a word, uh, a question you can ask where they just can't stop talking about yeah. it? Sometimes it's themselves. Sometimes that works. Which, okay, yeah. if you know someone who has that <laughs> yeah. kind of ego, great, that's yeah. easy. You can ask anything about themselves. But sometimes it's a, it's an, a more interesting, unique topic. Mm. And so that, if you're approaching a VIP, doing the right kind of research, like for example, I love doing not just Google research, but like looking to see if they have a public Amazon wish list, oh, or looking to see if they have a public Goodreads profile to see what they're reading. So clever. So there's other things that you can look at that are not just Google related. Yeah. Um, that you can try to find those hot buttons because mm -hmm. once you do that, you flip them out of autopilot, mm -hmm. right? Does that work with, let's say, dating or friendships? So first dates are the only, not, they're not an exception to the rule, but okay. yes, finding hot buttons for dates, for friendships is great. Mm -hmm. What you can do is do a little bit of pre-research ahead of time. And I like to be transparent about it, but you also can do this on the date. So it might not be like, for example, um, it might not be on a first date being like, so I searched you on um, Goodreads, Audible, <laughs> Amazon, and right, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in saying that. Because that might them. But what you could say is, you know, like I love looking at people's um, Goodreads. Do you have an account? What are you reading? Right. So you can just ask them that question mm -hmm. without having to go do it. Yeah. Um, and you can all, that's how you can look for hot buttons. Yeah. It's like, so like, are you obsessed with Netflix show, right? shows right now? You know, um, like, like what's your, what are you reading right now on Goodreads or Audible? Do you like auto, do you like audio books? Right, like you can start yeah. to say like that. Mm -hmm. and just asking them about it is better on a first date. Yeah. On a first date, I think it's a little bit, a little bit safer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a little safer. Um, so talk to me about radical transparency. Oh, goodness. Yes. Talking about dating or just in general, me and my husband live by that rule, radical yeah. transparency. Yeah. But I love your taking on, on like how you approach it. And so I think that the, the problem is that in most of our relationships, we feel like we have to uh, people please, make nice nice, or um, protect who we really are. Do you find that's more typical in women? Yeah, I do. Really? So I think that from a very young age, women are often taught appeasement. And this is a very big concept in body language. So I study body language a lot. And you'll notice that women do more appeasement body language. Mm -hmm. We nod more, we eyebrow raise more, we smile more. Mm. We smile, we smile I just touched more. your hand yes, earlier exactly, as well. Yes, exactly, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're taught that body language from mm. a very young age. Um, and I have a young baby and I see this now all the time where women will encourage, men and women will encourage female babies to do more smiling, touching, and playing together. Whereas men and women, I don't know if they realize it, encourage more male babies to explore, to play, to touch, to hold, to lift, to build. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Uh, and I just watched this in play mats, in classes with friends. I thought to myself, 
we talk about priming. If you're a baby, a female baby, and you're told from a young age over and over again, play nicely, mm-hmm. be gentle, play nice, smile, say hi, smile, wave, give her a kiss, blow her a kiss, hug. Okay? So true. My female baby is told those things all the time by everyone who meets her. Whereas my very good friend has a male baby just two months older, and he is told all day long, also play nice and be gentle, but mm-hmm. also, oh, show us, you're so strong, build, look how fast you are, you're already standing, crawling so good. The words he is hearing directed at him on an hourly basis are very different than the words that my daughter is hearing. But when you talk about priming from that young of age, when you have adults, fully grown adults, and you're telling them, set up a boundary for yourself, say no, they're hearing, be gentle, play nice, be cooperative, nice, smile, not. So it's, it's, we're actually going, I think, against some of our programming. Mm. And that is very, very challenging, especially when you don't know if you're going to get backlash from that no. Yeah. And so saying no is a skill. It's a skill that as women, as men, we have to hone that skill. and We have to get good at it. Saying no is unapologetically saying no not giving a reason. And this is a really hard one for oh, women. I do it all the time. I do this all the time You're too. You're right. I do this all the time too. Like I was telling you about an event that I wanted to go to tonight. Yeah. And um, this was a big, a big open event for um, women influencers. I did not owe anyone an explanation. But when I wrote back, I was like, I'm so sorry, I can't come, I have family dinner. I should not have done that. You even told me that I as well. Know. You said that to me. <laughs> like three <laughs> times. I know. Because I felt like I had yeah, to. And yeah. I, I'm trying to break that. Mm. So the way that we, the best way Why to do this. Why are you trying to break it? The reason is because if you give a reason, it invites someone to question your reason. Hmm. So th- think mm. about the difference. Okay? If you have a pushy friend, they actually will argue with you. It's a Friday night. You're exhausted. You had a really long week. Your friend of a friend is having a birthday party in a nightclub. They really wanted to come. And you're like, I am not about this. I don't want to go to a nightclub. I don't want to spend a lot of money. I don't want to wear my heels. I'd rather be in Netflix at home and cuddle with my dog. Yes. So you want to say no. If you just say, I hope you have a great night. I'm so sorry I can't attend. That's the correct way to say no. You offer a kindness and you just say no. You don't offer any reasons. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I'm so sorry I can't go. I've just had a really hard work week. If you have a pushy friend who's not good with boundaries, they're going to write, and be, write back and say, but this is a way to blow off steam from the week. First drink's on me. And then you're like, oh. And your boundary is pushed. And then you have to do it again. So you're better off getting, breaking your habit of not giving a reason, which is so hard. I still struggle with it. Because that way it, it invites people to respect your boundaries more and also sets you up to not have to do it over and over again. And we don't have to give a reason to give a boundary. Yeah. Like, I give you full permission to not give a reason if you want to set up a boundary. You're allowed to say no just for the sake of saying no. Mm-hmm. And the third option, by the way, when I, with the steps, I have a formula for saying no. So it's um, offer something nice, say no, do not offer a reason, and your option is to offer an alternative. Okay. So you could say... Have a great night. I hope you have a wonderful birthday. I'm so sorry I can't attend. If you want to go to brunch the next morning, I would love to do that with her. Right. If you want to. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Really simple. And if you have trouble saying no, if, uh, if you're watching and you're like, I really have trouble, never, ever agree to anything in person. And the reason for this mm-hmm. is because it's incredibly hard to say no to someone's face. 
it's much easier when you go back, you look at your calendar, and you write a text because you can really think about your wording. Yeah. So what I always say to my high people pleasers, my recovering people pleasers out there, <laughs> is just get in the habit, even if you know you're going to say yes, of not saying yes in person. Mm-hmm. Always, always default to, let me check my calendar and get back to you. Hey, let me check my phone and get back to you. Hey, let me email you when I get to work. Because then, whether it is a yes or whether it is a no, you're giving your, your, your default answer is always, I'm going to have to take a minute. Mm-hmm. And that sets you up for um, an easier no later. And by the way, like if you have a lot of things going on, I've never experienced this more than now. When you have a little one, when you have a thousand business things going on, you have to default to that because you really do have to go check your calendar. Mm-hmm, right. Against your partner's calendar, against your work calendar. <laughs> yeah. I have four calendars going on yeah. at all time. Like you have to be able to balance it out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So you yeah. recently had a baby. I did, yes. And for about nine, it feels like more than nine months, but you yeah. completely stopped posting on social media. Yeah. I saw, you know, a few photos, couple, yeah. a couple of here and there. Yeah. Um, and I realized when it happened that it was very conscious on your part. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Because that's one thing I talk about and battle with myself. Um, mm-hmm. I don't battle anymore, but that was one thing that I struggled with when Tom and I were contemplating, do we have children or not? Yeah. And it really was, what would my life look like if yeah. I had a child? Yeah. Could I switch off? Would I want to switch off? Mm-hmm. Will I feel withdrawal s- symptoms from switching yeah. off? And then also part of me was worried that I, I didn't want to resent the child for sure for me switching off. Yeah. Um, did you go through any of that? All of it. Oh, okay. All of it for sure. Um, so I think that the biggest question when we're talking about when, when I was thinking about becoming a mother was all those questions plus where would my motivation be? Mm. Right? Like before having a baby, I was so motivated to help people succeed in my business achieved business goals, I had a business bucket list, right? All these things. Mm. And I worried that I would have a baby and my motivation would be either be split in half or taken completely. Right. And I was like, what will my business look like if I'm not motivated to do it anymore? Right? Like I, yeah. That was a huge question mark. And so what I had to be okay with was, would my business survive without me being motivated? Could I do it as a job? Because my, my, my business is my passion. Mm. It's my career. I love it. And I realized, yes, if I had to, I could do my business as a job. Mm. I could write a post every week. I could do a video every week. I could do that. So that would be okay. But I would have to take some space to reevaluate what were my motivations. I realized that I thought that being a mom was the most adult thing you could do in the world. <laughs> yeah. Right? There is no bigger I'm an adult than having a baby and becoming a parent. Right. So I kind of thought that that was the ultimate in adultness. What I didn't realize is the moment you have a baby, it's actually extremely regressive. And this makes me think about motherhood in a very different way. So if you think about it when you're pregnant or you're even thinking about having children, you're at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow's hierarchy Mm -hmm. of needs, if you've seen it, you know, it's like shelter, food, water, um, uh, companionship, and then it gets higher. It's like goals and motivations, self-esteem and confidence. The very top is the most esoteric kind of thinking ones. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about having children, you're at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. You have the means emotionally, financially, time-wise to be able to think about having children. When you're pregnant, all you're doing is thinking in that very top part of the triangle. What do I want to teach my child? Mm -hmm. What's the meaning of life? What do I want this baby to feel and be? Right, You're at the very top. The moment you have that baby, you go to the very bottom of the triangle. What I mean by that is all of a sudden, 
All that matters is can I get enough to eat? Can I get enough sleep? Am I drinking enough water? Repeat, repeat, repeat. So true. And so in the first few weeks of motherhood, how do you survive going from such heady, beautiful thoughts to survival, Mm. right? To very aggressive. You are taking care of a baby, but all of a sudden you just went to your baby needs. What does baby need? Food, shelter, sleep, and to be changed. Mm. That's it. What do you do as a new time mom? It's just those four things. So all of a sudden you're a baby, they're a baby, and you're both doing everything for the first time. Wow, that never dawned on me. And for an A-type controlaholic, it's terrifying. Yeah. Because I don't like being new at things. I don't like not knowing how to do things. I don't like going back to basics. And so that was really, really hard. All of a sudden feeling like I was a baby myself and all my needs went right back to the bottom of the triangle. Wow. Did you recognize that in the moment? I did. Wow. I recognized in the moment where I was like, all I can do in a day is sleep eats poop that's it that's all i got and the same thing my daughter can do is sleep eat poop whoa (laughs) like like that was like really hard that was the first thing that was going on and the second thing that i didn't realize was you're mourning the death of an old life as you celebrate the birth of a new life Mm -hmm. and so in those first few weeks you're having these amazing moments of celebration of life of wow with this new creature but you're also mourning the death of your old life that you love to be yeah like it's gone Mm. for a long time you might get back you're an empty nester Mm -hmm. and so it's very weird that in also the same moment you're doing mourning and celebrating and so i think that my biggest concern was being able to find myself again Mm. and it's been incredible because i feel like i'm climbing back up the hierarchy and that's really amazing Right, like I, I was at the top of the hierarchy, yeah. right? I had grown up to be yeah. an adult. I had figured my business out. Like, but now I'm getting myself back up the triangle. She's seven months old. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, starting to sleep again, mm-hmm. still nursing, but starting to sleep again. And it's like, okay, I hit the next level. I'm starting to think about motivations for her, goals for her. There's no better climb than that in a weird way. So you're enjoying the climb. Yes, okay. I'm enjoying the climb. Now that I've passed that first, <laughs> the, the basics, yeah. once you're getting sleep again, it's like, oh, like I can find this new life again. I'm climbing back up the value ladder, which is incredibly fulfilling in a totally different way that I didn't expect. So th- there's two aspects mm. of being a parent I never, I never thought about before, but I think it's something that I wish someone had prepared me for. Yeah. Do you bit. worry or did you worry whether you could climb back up that ladder? Very much. Yeah, well, how did you overcome that? Because I think that that's such a big part, right, of letting yeah. go of something, fearing that it's yeah. gone forever, I guess, or um, for my own self, yeah. you know, I've been suffering for a lot of digestive issues yeah. for so many years. And all the advice I keep getting is, it's stress, you need to slow down. And part of me absolutely fears that like, but I'm just getting started and I've got so yeah. much like excitement yeah. and gung-ho, so I don't want to slow down. Yeah. But I do recognize that I need to. So that's kind of the battle. It's like a, yeah. it's a weird cycle. So what's interesting about that is my biggest fear was that I would lose all, lose all my motivation for my work, right. which I love, yep. which I love and sustains my family, right? Like right. It, or it sustains my yeah. family. My, my husband works in my company too. Yeah. So I was very nervous about that. And I was nervous that I wouldn't be able to get back to things of life that I really like. And I wouldn't be myself anymore. Mm. What I realized is that my old life, because right, it is an old life, yeah. pre-baby, 
was very um, contained in the sense that I had a very set schedule. I knew exactly what my, my capabilities were. I feel like I had climbed the hierarchy. And on a day-to-day basis, I had nice days and I had some bad days, mm. but no really big highs and lows. Mm. And so you live in this very narrow band. As a parent, all of a sudden, I have super highs. Oh. Moments where I'm like, this is the meaning of life. Having a child. Yes. Okay. Like, watching her do something that is exactly my husband's facial expression and being like, oh my, like this is the meaning of life. Like sitting outside, having dinner with my baby in the grass as she sees a butterfly for the first time, okay? <laughs> do you know you're like pulling your mom oh and God. your husband. Oh this is live. <laughs> like touching the grass, you know, like that's the meaning of life. Yeah. Before I never, ever, had the feeling this is the meaning of life. Mm. Maybe on my wedding day, very rarely did I have that feeling. If anyone has it on a weekly or monthly basis, kudos to you, mm. bottle up what you got. Because that's a very rare feeling. I have that on a weekly basis mm. raising her, right? On a weekly basis, yeah. there's something that happens where I'm like, this is why I'm on this earth, this is incredible. I also have the other side, right? which is the low of the low of the low, where you're like, how am I going to do this? Mm. I have no sleep. I have vomit all over me. My baby is crying and I don't know why. What am I doing? Mm. Right? That's the lowest of low. Because there's no return, there's no receipt. That's it. <laughs> and so the good news is, at least for me, and I know this isn't the case for everyone, weigh the highs outweigh the lows. There are mm. more highs Fine. on a weekly basis than lows. Right. In the beginning, it's harder because mm-hmm. obviously the baby is newer. But I realized, wow, maybe like this is life. That I was actually living in mm. black and white. Mm. It almost feels like my, my life pre-baby was dull colors. And so in a weird way, I feel like I'm finally living in technicolor. Mm. Oh, I like, like that's that, yeah. Kind of, that's like the best metaphor I can think for it. Yeah. And so in a way, yes, my motivation for my business has gone down. Mm. But I am still motivated. And I'm motivated in a very different way. The way that I write, I think, is different. Mm. The way that I look at people and things is different because I'm refinding my values on that hierarchy. Mm. I had to start from scratch all, all over again. And now I'm refiguring out, like, what does life look like? Like, what do I like out of life? I don't know if any other mother has ever experienced something like that, but I, have, I had never heard that before. That's or anything like it mm. before motherhood. And I kind of wish I had a yeah. little bit. Would, you, would that have changed anything for you? I think it would have. Really? What? Um, I think it would have made me less judgmental of myself in the first oh, few weeks. Interesting. Okay. Because in the first few weeks, I think you just assume there's like this motherly instinct that will just like turn right on. And you do have some of that. There was definitely some like, whoa, I can't believe I you know, woke up the mo- like 10 seconds before she did. You right. definitely have some of that. Mm. But I was also like so hard on myself that I couldn't get higher up the, the triangle faster. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I was like, what? Like my biggest goal in the morning is like making sure I get socks on. And so I was really hard on myself in the beginning because I thought, well, everyone, everyone like all these moms on Instagram are in moments of bliss. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all in moments of bliss. So like I should always be in a moment of bliss. And there are moments of bliss of for sure, but there are also moments of not bliss. You know, I sort of, I think that I love the Wonder Woman idea, but I think it actually cripples us. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're Wonder Woman, you don't have a bad day, you don't ask for help, you don't get pimples, 
you know, you don't know how to not do something. And so I think that that crippled me a little bit because I wanted to be, I wanted to have it all, mm -hmm. right? I wanted to be like the perfect mom and get back to work at two months and be back in shape and like something's got to give. Yeah. And part of that is asking for help. And so I had these moments where I was like, I literally can't do this by myself. I have to ask for more help from my partner. I have to ask my mom to come over. I have to ask friends for more help. Saying yes to those offers of help was one of the harder things about parenting mm. for me. And I think that's, that's weird to say it was hard for me to accept an offer of help, but it was. Mm. It is still. Because do you think that it was, was because you had an identity of who you were? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to have it all. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if you ever look at attachment theory, um, but attachment theory is like I this agree. idea that, that everyone has a certain kind of attachment with um, their people in their life. Mm -hmm. So it's based on this really interesting research where it's called the strange situation experiment. They had children in a playroom with their mother. And then they had the mother get up, walk out of the room, mm -hmm. and a stranger would walk into the room, and the mother would come back in the room. Well, the stranger's in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they wanted to see what the child would do in a strange situation like this. Okay. And they identified that there were uh, three different reactions of a child. One was anxious. The child got really upset, wanted to be soothed, clingy with mom, soothe me, soothe me, soothe me. Mm -hmm. That's called anxious attachment. The other one was avoidant, where the baby didn't see their mother as someone who could help them. And so they actually avoided their mother's gaze and kind of isolated or secluded, played with a toy, turned away from their mother, didn't want any, any kind of soothing. And the last one was secure where they noticed it was a little bit weird and they wanted, they looked to mom to see, mom, is everything okay? We're good? Okay, we're good. And they were able to keep playing. And the last one was a very small portion of the population which is both anxious and avoidant. Wanted to be self-soothed, I hate you. Wanted to be self-soothed, put me down. 5% of the population is anxious avoidant. 22% of the population is anxious, 20% population is avoidant, and 50% is secure. They've found that these attachments dictate your relationship patterns for your entire life. Yeah. Um, oh. And this is really powerful work. I've seen it over and over again in my personal relationships as well as my work relationships. That if you are an anxious attachment, all of your relationships follow that pattern. Mm. You, um, you have the kind of relationships where you want the person to constantly check in with you. You're a little bit more clingy. You can sometimes push people away for how much you want to be sort of in the know and you want that constant feeding of, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me enough? And avoidant, avoidant people are, they push people away. Now I'm an avoidant attachment. So as avoidant, it means you don't want to ask for help. You don't like you're getting close to people. You push people away until you're really sure that they're safe. And so as uh, someone who's recovering avoidant, being Sounds a parent and asking for help is really, really hard. Right. So it's interesting, and I am very aware of this with my own daughter. You know, I really am trying to set up a really secure attachment mm -hmm. with her. Luckily, my husband is securely attached. He's a secure attachment. Mm. So it's really great for me to see how he interacts with her because I'm able to learn and model from that. So how important is it for people to self-assess before they have children and things like that so they know what they're projecting onto them? I think it's really important to identify your relationship patterns. Relationship with everyone. everyone. Okay. Everyone. So this is friendships. This mm -hmm. is work relationships. This is romantic relationships. This is relationships with your children. It's very important to look at your patterns because you might be thinking that you're having a different relationship every time, 
but you might actually mm. be having the exact same relationship over and over again in different pants. Right. So I know I mentioned it in my intro, but your book really did have such a profound impact on mm. my relationship and our business. Yeah. So you were on our show, Impact Theory. Yeah. And so Tom, we get a lot of guests on, so t but Tom was like, babe, you have to read this book. And he doesn't often say that to me. Yeah. So when he told me I had to read the book, I was like, all right, I guess I've got to read it. Yeah. And we think we know each other very well. And we did the quiz and we discovered like, oh my God, our love language is one word we thought. Yeah, yeah. So we discovered that he's someone who's words of affirmation yeah. and I'm the person that wants um, acts of service. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have those phrasing, we didn't know that about it until we read your book and that is what I love so much about it. It made us review ourselves, yeah. review our relationship and we yeah. also did this within the company. We did the whole workshop, we sat down and we did all these quizzes with the team and we went around the table to find out what other people's um, are they words of affirmation? Are they um, acts of service? Like yeah. what is their love language? Yeah. In order to show them when I want to show how much I appreciate them, mm. finding out what their words are. Right. And because of your workshop, I discovered that one of the girls that I work with, I'm always the person that's like, oh my God, thank you so much. But I never got that like almost satisfaction from myself that she's hearing me. Right. You're like, I don't know if this, is, if this gratitude is falling on deaf ears. Yeah, 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 because I never saw like a spark of like, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Until we did the quiz, then I realized hers was acts of service. Yeah. And so what I ended up doing is like, okay, what would an act of service to her be like? And because she also suffers from major health issues yeah. like I do, I thought, okay, well, what would I want? And so I gave her a, a drawer in my personal fridge um, and said, here, take the drawer because I know you've got some health issues. You want to keep your food safe. And that's when you turned around to me. So I love yeah. this story because you gave a drawer in your fridge, which for someone who is having any kind of food issues, health issues, they want to make sure their food is there. If you have any kind of health issues, you're anxious about your food all day, yes. every day. Okay. Yes. You're worrying about your food choices. You're worrying about how you're going to feel after your food. You're thinking about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. If she knows her food is safe, one, you're taking down her anxiety every single day, which also helps her be calmer at work. Mm. So in a weird way, it comes back to you. And the second thing is you only had to clean out that drawer once, but actually the gift keeps on giving every time she opens it. Every day when she puts her lunch in that drawer, She's going, ah, oh, thank you, Lisa. And she actually said that. Yeah. She said, every day when I put my lunch in there, I say, thank you, Lisa. Yeah. But you only had to clean out that drawer once. Yeah. And you know that that's actually helping her think about you every day. These are my favorite kind of gifts and acts of service. Can you think of a gift that will be used or appreciated on a daily basis but you don't have to keep giving. Mm. Yeah, your book really was transformational. Yeah. Um, actually, then one other thing I'd love to talk to you about. Yes. Which I never know if I'm if I overthink things or not, but sometimes yeah. I think most a lot of us women like always, we're in our always. own head. But yeah. I was totally in my own head. So I knew you were having a baby, and I knew that you were like pulling back from a lot of social things. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely wanted to respect that. And at the same time, I want to let you know, girl, you're going to come back and you're going to come on the show and you're going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then part of me, though, was like, but what if she doesn't want to? And what if now my text is actually Pressure. not being received how I mean it? I want her to know yeah. that I adore her and I respect her and I desperately want her to like yeah. come on the show yeah. and spout yeah. the words of wisdom. But part of me was like, yeah. is this going to do the complete opposite? Because maybe mm. she's at home right now. Maybe she's thinking, I don't want to go back to work. Yeah. And now am I kind of putting pressure on you? Yeah. So how would you actually advise somebody like yeah. that to 
like, what advice would you give me to text you? Yeah, so I actually love fill in the blank wishes. Okay, um, and what I mean by this is like, and I, I use this in marketing too, actually. Mm. It's a great thing for both well-wishing and marketing and advertising okay. if you're thinking about it. Which is if you give someone um, a wish or um, an encouragement, they will often fill in the blank. So for example, yeah. if I'm writing copy for a sales page and I say, um, whenever you walk into the room to meet your boss, you're probably anxious. I'm going to help you deal with this anxiety through my confidence building course. That's a very specific example, right? I'm telling them what room they're walking into, who's in it, and how they're going to feel. Mm -hmm. That's not a great sales copy page. Okay. What's better is actually letting them fill in the blank for whatever situation provides them the most anxiety. So what instead would be better would be, have you ever walked into a room and felt really anxious? Ooh. I would love to help you feel confident. So no matter who you're talking to and where you are, you're going to feel good about yourself. That is much more powerful sales copy because in your head, you just filled in the blank with your boss, your partner, your colleague, that really mean girl down the hallway, whoever that person is, I let you tell me. So when I write my sales copy, I think very, very carefully about fill in the blank wishes. What is in their, how can I let them fill in the blank for the example, the person, the scenario to tell me that? It's the same thing with well wishes. So for example, if you're thinking about me, if I'm about to go on um, maternity leave, mm -hmm. what is the one wish you know I'll have whether or not I come back or I'm a full-time mom, right? W which one is it? It could be that you just want me to feel confident, empowered, and like I am fully supported. Yeah. I wanted you to feel loved. Exactly. That wish, no matter where I filled in the blank, whether that was me feeling loved when I came back into your arms to come on this beautiful show, or whether it was me to say, have the permission to say, I'm out. Mm -hmm. I want to I just dive into motherhood and that's it. That wish would have allowed me to fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. So when you're wishing people good things, and this is not just you know, in big moments, it's also just like, hey, I'm thinking about you. I want to check in with you. I hadn't seen you in a long time. What emotion do you want them to feel in whatever situation they are? Ooh, okay. Could be loved, could be empowered. And actually, I did mm -hmm. feel love from your support. Oh, I did feel that. And the nice thing is I didn't feel any pressure, but I could have. Right. Right. If I was on the precipice right, right. of making a decision of not coming back, that would have felt like, oh, I'm disappointing her. Right. And the last thing I want to do is put myself in a situation yeah. where I'm becoming the source of your anxiousness. Yeah. yeah. And right, I'm sure people at home can associate with a partner or a friend where this same situation occurs. And so that's why giving them fill-in-the-blank wishes of whatever emotion you want them to feel and the freedom for them to use it in any situation they want. Okay. And this could be as clear as saying, no matter what you decide to do next year, I am so excited for you. Okay, that's I'm nice. sending yeah. you so much love. Right? This could also be the same if like, someone has, um, you know, they, they're fired from a job or they left their job or someone has something bad in mm -hmm. their life. Sometimes you're like, I don't know if they're happy about this. I don't know if they're devastated. Right. I don't know if I should offer them help or if they're going to be offended if I offer them help. The worst thing you can do is stay silent. The worst thing you can do is stay silent. I cannot tell you how many people in grief or in bad times feel like they are abandoned. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, it's not because their friends don't want to support them, it's because they don't know what to say. Yeah. And so your best thing is to think, okay, what's the positive emotion I want them to feel? And just giving them that permission to send it. 
That, I think, is the greatest thing we can do for people who are in any kind of precipice. Yeah. Girl, you're freaking awesome. Um, where can people find you online and your amazing book? Yeah, so uh, everything's at scienceofpeople.com, and Captivate is wherever books are sold. And we have our next class of people school coming up, which is all the social skills you never learned in school for professionals. So oh. uh, join me. I love my next class. Uh, I meet every single student. So, yeah, That's applications so are coming awesome. up. Um, and my last question, yeah. what is the superpower that you have? I'm going to say it is translating. Mm. And I think that a lot of the time uh, we feel these giant emotions, awkwardness, anxiety, and we don't know how to talk about them. We don't know what they mean. We don't know how to put them into something that we can leverage. And so I think that one of the things I really try to do is if I have any kind of negative or positive emotion, but the negative ones, is how can we translate this into something useful? Mm. How can I talk about it in a way that makes people feel less alone, less alone with their awkwardness, less alone with their anxiety? And then how can I make them see that they can use it? They don't have to hide their awkwardness. They don't have to hide their anxiety. This is something that we can absolutely use. And so I think that maybe just translating. I love that. Yeah. Girl. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my me. God. <laughs> guys, guys. Okay, so I think I've said enough of how much I absolutely love this book. But if you happen to have missed it, I love this book. Um, when I truly say it changed my relationship and the way that we function in this company, it really did. So if you want to improve, if you want to get to know people, understand people so you can have a better relationship with them, go get this book. And if you're not subscribed here, guys, click that subscribe button. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And until next time, go be the hero of your own life. Peace out.